Welcome to the Rosemont Baptist Church Podcast. Rosemont is a thriving group of believers who desire to connect with Jesus and His church, grow in faith and understanding of God's Word, and serve in our local area and around the world. We are located in LaGrange, Georgia at 3794 Hamilton Road and invite you to attend any of our three services on Sunday mornings. Please visit our website at rosemontchurch.org for more information. And now we pray that God speaks to you in a personal way as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp. Take your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, continuing our study this morning through the book of Exodus, the story of God's redemption of his plan for his people. And I'm going to give you just a a kind of quick recap in case maybe you haven't been with us yet or you're watching from home. Welcome. If you're at the beach over a fall break and you're watching up the mountains, we're glad you joined us online or in our overflow service. I'm going to give you just a kind of an update of where we are to help you understand where we're going. At this point in our study, Moses has been born. He's born really under a death sentence. Pharaoh has declared that all male babies be executed because he's afraid of the power of the people of Israel as they grow. So Moses has been born. His mother has hidden him, put him into a basket, put it on the river, floated it down the Nile River. Pharaoh's daughter has found him brought Moses into Pharaoh's house, and for 40 years, he's lived in the house of Pharaoh. Bible tells us he went out one day, saw an Egyptian arguing with a Jewish man. The Egyptian uh, was fighting with him. Moses killed the Egyptian, tried to bury his body in the sand, trying to hide it. As soon as he realized people knew and understood, he fled. He goes into the wilderness, and for 40 more years, he's tending sheep. So 40 years in the house of Pharaoh, 40 years in the wilderness, and then the Lord is going to speak to him through the burning bush. And so we studied last week and read about the burning bush, the bush that was um, burning but not consumed. The Lord had made himself clear to Moses. He had kind of explained to Moses who he was. And so we learned last week about the holiness and the majesty of the Lord, the, the great I am. He's the same yesterday today and tomorrow, and his glory is on full display. So kind of thinking about where we've been, just kind of a quick picture of where we're going, right? The the glory of the Lord and the majesty of the Lord is going to be a theme that's going to continue through the book of Exodus. And we've gotten just a small glimpse of the power of the Lord, just a small glimpse of his glory so far. That is going to increase. So we're going to go from a burning bush to 10 plagues, to the leading of the people to the Red Sea. God's going to part the sea. They're going to walk through and dry land. He's going to lead them in the wilderness, eventually to Mount Sinai. He's going to cover the mountain with fire and his glory. He's going to give the Ten Commandments to Moses, eventually lead the people over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. So this book is just filled with the glory and the power and the majesty of God. It's really the narrative uh, that undergirds everything else. And so that power this morning is going to continue. So in context of Exodus chapter 4, in Exodus 3, we started the conversation at the burning bush. Moses and the Lord have been speaking. It's kind of in the middle of that conversation now that Exodus chapter 4 begins. So let's jump right in. Exodus 4 verse 1. Then Moses answered. He's speaking to the Lord. There's this dialogue. We're in the middle of this conversation. But behold, there will not, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, he's speaking to Moses, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. 
He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand out and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, verse 6, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now let's stop for a minute. Moses and God are having a conversation. Moses is concerned that people won't listen to him. The Lord has already explained to him exactly who he is, but he says, listen, if they don't listen to you, I'm going to give you some things I want you to do. In fact, truth number one, the Lord is going to give Moses three signs. Three signs I want you to see, three signs I want you to understand. Now here's what you might not know at this very moment. These signs are not random events. They're not random things that the Lord just decided to do for fun. He wasn't just sitting there thinking, I wonder what would be really cool. Oh, let's turn a stick into a snake, right? There are deeper meanings and deeper understandings, we're going to see in just a second, that get to the heart of the power and majesty of the Lord, but also exactly who the people of Egypt were. So the first demonstration of power that the Lord uses is this staff. And he says to Moses, listen, take that staff, that stick, that walking stick you're carrying, throw it on the ground, and the Bible says it became a serpent or a snake, and Moses ran from it. Anybody ever encountered a snake in the wilderness and were kind of afraid for a moment? I'll never forget, I went to the Okefenokee Swamp years ago. There's a lot of stuff in the Okefenokee, by the way. A lot of critters. And if you've ever taken the boat ride out into the swamp, it can be a little scary because there are all sorts of things crawling and lurking out in the wilderness. And I'll never forget, we took the boat ride, came back in, and went to the reptile show. Now, I'm not sure if they still do this at the Okefenokee Swamp Ride. This was a long time ago. But we went to the reptile, the, kind of the snake show. And the way they did it back then is they walk in, this guy walks in with this big box. And as soon as he opens the box, now the way you need to understand the theater set up here, it's not as if we're uh, 100 feet away or there's this big moat or there's glass. We're literally, there's a floor and there's a bunch of folding chairs and the guy is maybe 10 feet away from me, maybe. He's probably closer to six. And he opens up this box and I hear immediately, I'm thinking, what, what is he? This is a joke, man. There's a speaker in there. He gets out his big, the big metal rod, reaches down and pulls out a diamondback rattlesnake, big one, probably five or six feet, lays it in the floor. I'm not kidding. Lays it in the floor. I, I'm, I'm, Jared, I'm where you are, maybe a little closer. And I'm already, I've already got my exit plan. Like, what old lady am I going to knock out of the way to get out of this building? Because if that thing moves... I'm gone, right? So the whole time, if this is the snake, the guy stays a certain distance and he's talking to us the whole time. He's talking about habitats and how lethal this thing is and what would happen if he bit you and he builds a whole, but he says to us, listen, as long as I stay about six feet away, I'm gonna be fine. 
As long as I keep my distance. And, and sure enough, he talks for five or ten minutes the whole time the snake is watching him. That rattle is going, man. And when he's done, he gets that, that big long thing, he picks the snake up, puts it back in the box. And I thought, man, that, that's a pretty scary moment. Did, did this really happen? And when I, when I read this account of the serpent and running from it, I always think back about that moment. And I think about the fear that Moses must have felt when he threw that thing on the ground, it became a snake. But I want you to watch what the Lord's gonna do here. The Lord says, listen, I don't need you to be afraid of the snake. I don't need you to worry about it. I want you to reach down and pick it up and it's gonna become a staff again. Now for us, that's a, that's a pretty cool trick, man. Lord, I'd love to see that happen. Pretty neat. That's a fun thing. Wow, the Lord can turn a snake, a stick into a snake and a snake into a stick. And that's all we really think about it. There's a much more deeper understanding. I want you to look at this picture I've got of one of the Pharaohs that they found. I think this uh, maybe be common. I'm not sure which one of the Pharaohs it is. But you may have seen this sort of a picture before. It's pretty common. What you might not have noticed about this is the hood that goes around the Pharaoh was a serpent hood, specifically a cobra hood. And if you looked at the very top, and you might can see it from where you are, there's actually a coiled cobra on the top of his head there. That was a symbol to the people of Egypt. In fact, they worshiped the snake. They worshiped the serpent. Here's how one Egyptian writer wrote it and explained it. The cobra represented in particular the national god of lower Egypt and was the foremost symbol of Pharaoh, reflecting his claim of divine royalty, sovereignty, and power. Therefore, it consistently appears on his crown or helmet as depicted in reliefs, paintings, statues. His scepter is often stylized as a cobra. Even the Egyptian gods are frequently depicted with the scepter in the form of a snake. We are safe in concluding that the transformation of the rod to a snake is a sign aimed precisely at the very symbol of Pharaoh's alleged power. So when God turns this staff into a snake and a snake back into a staff, he's saying to Pharaoh, I've got power over you, buddy. I'm in control of this situation. You may think you're the all-powerful Pharaoh, but you need to understand I'm still the one that controls all things. So far from just a simple parlor trick, this was hitting right at the heart of Pharaoh's power. Now Moses is going to do this in front of Pharaoh. We'll see this a little bit later as we get closer to time. But, but God is beginning now, and we're going to see this over the 10 plagues as well. God is beginning now to demonstrate his power over the Egyptians. He says, put your hand in your cloak. It's going to turn into leprosy, right? Which is a skin disease that most of us are not familiar with other than from scripture. Very horrific disease uncurable back then. People died of it. Take your hand out and it's healed. Very common in Egypt. The Lord is saying, listen, I've got control not only over Pharaoh, I've got control over disease and health. Well, and then the third sign, listen, they don't listen to the snake, which they don't. They don't see the leprosy and don't change their hearts, which they don't. Then I want you to take some water from the Nile River. Now the Nile River for us is a big river in Africa. That's about all we know about it. Most people. But I want to show you a picture that might help you understand the significance of the Nile River. Pull that next picture up if you would, please. This is a satellite image of the Nile River. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. I want you to notice the color contrast. To the north would be the Mediterranean, to the right, the Red Sea. And then right over here, this snaky thing that goes up to the triangle, that's the Nile River. To the north is the Nile River Delta. They call that Lower Egypt. 
not because it was lower geographically. It's actually in the north part of Egypt, but it's lower physically, right? The Nile drains downward from elevation all the way to the delta at the north. But the thing I want you to notice is that the area in the delta and near the river is darker and greener. Outside of the Nile and the delta, it's very yellow and brown, right? So you can kind of simply say it's desert versus the fertile area of the Nile. And what happened is every year, the Nile River would flood its banks. When it flooded, because the land is so flat out to the side, it would deposit water sometimes miles outside of the bank. And when it deposited that water, that came with very rich, dark soil. And so it would take all this dirt from the Nile, deposit it out for miles on both sides. The waters would recede from the flood and the people would plant all along the Nile River. And so it's very green still. Obviously, this is a modern-day picture. And because it was so fertile, because it was so important, all the major cities of Egypt grew up on the Nile River. We've got that picture as well. Pull that next slide up if you would. These are all the important cities of ancient Egypt, and many of them are still here today, all located within the Nile River, all located within the Delta. Right, so far from being simply a big river, the Nile, listen, was the lifeblood of the people of Egypt. It wasn't a place where they go ride their boats or jet ski or go to a lake house for the weekend like we think about a river, right? It's where they survived. Had it not been for the Nile River, they would have died. In fact, one writer explained it like this. The third sign, the corruption of the Nile, struck at the very heart of Egypt's existence. It's estimated that the Nile Basin received as much as 30 feet of mud in the river's annual inundation, making it the black land in contrast to the red land of the surrounding desert. Every year, the Nile waters washed, cleansed, renewed, and increased Egypt's soil and were the reason for Egypt's famed fertility and her great wealth and power. The Nile also abounded in fish and fowl. The river was endless in its bounty, and the people sang its praises continually. The threat and destruction of the Nile was destruction of Egypt itself. So, so when the Lord says to Moses, listen, you take some of that water in a jar, as silly as this sounds, and dump it out, it's going to become blood. It wasn't just a simple trick. It wasn't a magic trick. It was to demonstrate to the people of Egypt, listen, I've got power over the Pharaoh. I've got power over your health and your wellness. I've got power over your disease. I've got power over life itself through the Nile. Right? God is demonstrating. He's actively showing, living out, demonstrating these people his power and his majesty and his glory, right? It's going to start here. It's going to continue really through the entire book of Exodus, right? And here's kind of the big picture we gain from this. God is capable of all things, right? We, we learned last week and we saw, and this is scriptural really through the Old and New Testament, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the same God that turned the stick into the snake and the snake back into the stick, the same God that cured the leprosy, the same God that called, caused the water of the Nile to turn to blood is the same God we serve today. His same power, his same majesty, his same ability. And so as we think about how the Lord might work in our lives and we ask questions, listen, Lord, do you think you can work in this situation? The answer is absolutely yes. 
If God can do these things, if God can demonstrate his power over the Pharaoh and the Egyptians and and life and death, God can absolutely and will demonstrate his power in your life as well. We just have to trust him. Because the problem we're going to see here, right, the problem we're going to kind of run up against right now, we've already seen it a little bit in in, in Exodus chapter 3, now into chapter 4. The problem is not can the Lord do it, absolutely. The problem is will Moses believe him? And will Moses have the faith to allow him to work. It's the same problem we struggle with today, isn't it? So let's continue. Look at verse 10. Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. All these signs, these miraculous things, verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, I'm still unsure. Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Verse 12, now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to say. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs, right? So we've seen the signs of the Lord. We've seen him demonstrating his power. We've seen him demonstrating his majesty. But here's the problem, right? It's the same problem we weren't running to today. Truth number two, Moses lacks faith. Right? In the midst of this glorious demonstration of the Lord, and by the way, the Lord's just getting started. Like if Moses thought the burning bush was incredible and the snake and the leprosy and the river example, if he thought that was incredible, the Lord's really just now getting started. But the problem in the midst of all this is that Moses lacks faith. In fact, Moses is insecure. He's not capable. He doesn't think of doing this. He's asked the Lord the kind of two questions of Exodus chapter 3, who am I and who are you? Right, It led to this great discussion of the great I am, of the power and the majesty of the Lord now demonstrated in these three signs. But Moses continues to question. And so now we find in Exodus chapter 4 verse 10, Moses said to him, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Right? Some scholars believe that there was actually some speech impediment. Maybe he couldn't speak properly or had a problem speaking. Either way, he doesn't think he can do it. So it's very interesting to me. Moses has basically come across this burning bush. The Lord has called out to Moses, Moses, Moses. And and, and, and Moses basically says to the Lord, here I am. And now he's saying, but I need you to send somebody else. I I know you're God. I know you're powerful. But I need you to send somebody else. I, I wonder how many of us, Miss the calling of the Lord because we don't think we can do it. I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had over the years with people who say something to me like, I don't know that I can witness because I'm not quite sure what to say. 
I'm not quite sure how to answer the questions. And the fear for a lot of people is, I'm going to witness to this person. They're going to ask me some questions that I don't know the answer to. I'm not going to quite know how to respond to them. Therefore, I'm not good enough to do it, Lord. I need you to send somebody else. It's the same thing Moses said. It's the same concern people throughout history have had. The problem is we take too much credit ourselves. We think too highly of ourselves. We believe that we actually have the power to save people. We don't. Right? Just kind of a wake-up call. You're never going to save anybody. Right? Only the Lord can do that. It's our calling to share. It's our calling to go. It's our calling to be faithful. But it's also our calling, even when we're not capable and don't think we can do it, to trust in the Lord. At obedience. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when the Lord says, You have this treasure in jars of clay. He's speaking of us as jars of clay, and jars of clay are very fragile. You have a treasure, right? And you think about your treasure, you don't store it in a fragile thing, you store it in a safe or a vault, or you bury it where it's protected, right? But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's never been about us. It's always been about the Lord. And so when Moses questions God, God reminds him of this. Look at verse 11 again. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. I'm reminded of the end of the book of Job. If you've never read through the book of Job, you ought to read it. It's a story of great suffering and tragedy, and we know the story, but I think sometimes we forget the ending when Job is, is having this conversation with the Lord, and the Lord is reminding Job of exactly who he is. And the Lord says, and this is Job chapter 38, I'm going to read a few of the verses. This is the Lord speaking to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. On and on the Lord goes here in Job chapter 38 of his majesty and his glory and his beauty. But Moses is still afraid. Moses is still unsure. He refuses to obey. And what we begin to see here, this moves from fear and questioning very simply to disobedience. Here's how one writer explained it. No one is indispensable, not even Moses. God can always find someone else's do, to do his will, but by refusing to do what God has called us to do, we miss out on the fullness of God's blessing. I, I think we, we fast forward a, a few thousand years here and we ask ourselves the question, listen, what's the Lord calling me to do right now? What great thing has the Lord called me to do? What's the Lord called me to accomplish that I could never do outside of his power? What's the Lord calling me to accomplish that I could never accomplish if the Lord isn't walking with me through this entire process? What, what things have we given up on because we don't think we can accomplish them? What things have we given up on because we're not quite certain that we're able to do the things the Lord's called us to do? What, what things have we said no to because we don't trust the Lord enough? 
When I think about decisions in life, sometimes I think very practically, and I think uh, just to kind of help me better understand it, I think about decisions in life oftentimes like a series of doors. And our, our lives are like this. We have choices to make. And depending on which door we walk through, other doors open up and close. And as we walk through this door, this door opens, this door closes. And I just wonder what, what things has the Lord called us to do? What doors has he called us to walk through that we've been afraid and never done them, not understanding the blessing the Lord has for us on the other side? Not understanding how much the Lord will use us, how much the Lord will cause us to do great things, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Moses is unsure. He's lacking faith. The Lord is going to continue to call him. Look at verse 18. So Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, had them ride on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve you. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That's going to play out in the final plagues. We'll see that in a few weeks. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he'd seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Here's the third truth I want you to see. Even in the midst of this struggle, even in the midst of the uncertainty, the Lord is going to send Moses back to Egypt. It's a full circle here. He's left, he's fled, he spent 40 years in the wilderness, and now God is going to call him back to Egypt. Now, we can probably debate this uh, for a long time, but it's an interesting question why the Lord allowed Moses to wait for 40 years. Moses was already in the house of Pharaoh. Like in my brain, it makes sense for Moses at that moment to be called. Why didn't the Lord call Moses at that moment, have him go back into the house of Pharaoh, save the 40 years in the wilderness, and just allow Moses to do it then? Now, the Bible uh, is not 100% clear, although we get some indication in other places. The idea, I think we can say biblically, the Lord wanted Moses to wait 40 years for a time of preparation. And Moses wasn't ready. It wasn't time yet. And so the Lord used 40 years to prepare him, to strengthen him, to encourage him, to give him the tools he would one day need to go back into Egypt and tell the Pharaoh to let the people go. And so just kind of a, a point of application for us, sometimes we have to be patient for the Lord to work, don't we? Not easy to do. 
Man, and I pray the Lord never makes me wait 40 years to accomplish something. But if he does, so be it. And so we, we understand as we walk through these challenges, as we walk through these difficulties, if you right now feel like, man, I'm walking through a wilderness, I'm walking through a struggle, there's something I'm going through right now that's incredibly difficult, take heart and understand the Lord is always preparing you for something greater. The Lord is always preparing you for something greater. The struggle is to have the patience to believe it, to have the patience to live it out. Now, there's some important themes that I want to touch on very quickly here before I finish up this morning. There, there's some themes I want you to see that are going to kind of be reoccurring in the book of Exodus. One is this idea of the Pharaoh's heart being hardened. In fact, there are, I think, about 20 verses that speak of the Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And we find kind of three categories. Category one is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So we see examples like Exodus 8, 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord said. There's a second category where Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but it doesn't specifically explain who did it. So Exodus chapter 7 verse 13 says, Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then there's the third category, like we see in Exodus 4.21, where the Lord very clearly hardens the Pharaoh's heart. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you did before Egypt, before Pharaoh, all the miracles that I've put in your presence. Listen, this is the Lord speaking. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So the question that we have to answer or that we probably wonder is, listen, did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? I would argue both are true. You say, come on, man, that's, a, that's an easy out. You're straddling the fence. Why can't you pick one side or there? Because this is the great mystery of divine sovereignty versus free will, right? We used to talk in seminary about attention. There's a tension between both. And if you pull too hard in one direction, you destroy. If you pull too hard in the other direction, you destroy. And so we affirm God is in complete control of all things. We affirm that God knows the beginning from the end. We affirm that God is sovereign over all things. He's the king of the universe. Are all those things true? Absolutely resounding yes. Like you can't really make a biblical case otherwise scripturally. But we also affirm that we're accountable for our actions. We affirm that we have a choice in our decisions. We affirm that we can freely trust in Jesus. Are all those things true? A resounding yes. This is how one writer explained it. This is the paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It's not a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to be adored. As human beings made in the image of God, we make a real choice to accept or reject God, but even the choice we make is governed by God's sovereignty and eternal will. Now, here's the problem, right? We get into these moments, and, and Christians like to debate this. And I've kind of been down that road. I understand what that looks like. And oftentimes, unfortunately, that causes great division. So I would say to you, instead of trying to understand it, which in human terms will be impossible for us to fully understand, I would say to you what we ought to begin to see here is not worry so much about who's right or wrong or what it looks like, but instead in the middle of all this to see the glory and the majesty of the Lord. Right? He is sovereign over all things. He holds us responsible for our actions. He knows the beginning from the end. 
And so we trust him. And instead of arguing, and, and trust me, I've read the books and I've had the discussions and I've sat in seminary classes and walked through all that. In the end, oftentimes all it really does is divide people. Let's not do that. Let's instead see the glory of the Lord here. Understand that our minds are finite and we won't fully understand it until we get to heaven. All right, but God's glory is built within this, right? And so this glory now is, is shown through the Lord and how he works to the people of Israel. Now, there's an interesting verse I want you to see, and I'm, I'm running out of time, but give me a couple more minutes here. Exodus 4, 22. I want you to notice how the Lord speaks to the people of Israel, right? Within his sovereignty, within his control. Pull up verse 22. Here's what the Lord says. Then you, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel, now listen, is my firstborn son. Now, I've, I've talked to you already about the types of Christ, and we're going to see that again in the Old Testament. I've talked to you about how the Old Testament paints a picture of Jesus one day to come. And so when the Lord is speaking of the people of Israel as his firstborn son, it's this beautiful picture of his love for them, of his choice choosing them, not because of who they were, but because of who he is. It's a beautiful picture of how much he loved them. But here's the problem. Now, we're looking ahead to Jesus. The problem is the people of Israel failed. Time and time again, they sinned. They had some good times, they had some bad times. But overall, they were lacking in trust, just like Moses was. They were lacking in faith, just like Moses was. They failed to do all the things that the Lord called them to do. And so the firstborn son in the Old Testament isn't worthy of what the Lord's called him to be. It's not until Jesus comes that the true son fulfills all that the Lord calls him to be, all that the Lord calls him to do. He accomplishes the things that Moses couldn't accomplish, the things the people of Israel couldn't accomplish, the things that no one in history has ever been able to accomplish except Christ. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect lamb. And so even as we look into the failure of the Old Testament, even as we look into the, the lack of trust and faith in Moses, even as we look into the Israelites being God chosen, God's chosen people, failed ultimately in what they were called to do, we have these these. these pictures, right? Just very small little pictures and reminders growing and growing of who Christ is going to be, of the need one day for a Savior. You know, if you're, if you're here this morning or you're listening from home and you're in the overflow and you never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, let this be the day. Repent of your sins, trust in Christ. Our team's going to come out here in just a minute, and they're going to sing. We're going to have a, an opportunity for worship and an opportunity for an invitation. You use this time to seek the Lord where he may be found. Now let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your majesty and glory. We thank you for the story of the people of Israel, Father. Even in their failures, you loved them and were faithful and always thinking ahead and looking ahead to Jesus. Lord, help us to grow in our faith to grow in our trust. Help us to, to see you more and more, live for you more and more. Give our hearts and our minds and our lives to Christ. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.